0: So be careful what you tell me, you might end up up here. (laughs) And you need to know, the only reason I'm up here is because a bunch of people early on in my life said, you need to talk, you need to get up in front, and uh, I'm grateful for people pushing me uh, into places where God has called me. Uh, Well, we continue with our theme of this year, 2020. Uh, uh, using it as a description of honing our vision to see God more clearly, to see ourselves more clearly, to see life, other people more clearly. And uh, and it's so easy for our vision to disintegrate, assuming it's even good to begin with, and, uh, and to get off track on this. So, one of the ways we help keep our vision on God and the purpose for which he has us is we have a mission statement uh, whereby we say we go and develop devoted followers of Jesus. Now, implicit in that statement is that we as followers of Jesus are developing ourselves. We're developing in our own devotion while we're developing other people. And this is just the way life works in a sinful world where we aren't perfect. So if you're uh, a finished carpenter, while you're working to do finished carpentry, you are learning more about finished carpentry. If you're parenting, uh, while you're parenting, you are learning more about parenting, right? This is just the way life always works, that when you put your hand to a task and you would work at fulfilling a responsibility, you grow and develop even in your abilities and in your sense of doing that. And so, so don't, don't miss the point that as we're going and developing devoted followers of Jesus, we ourselves are developing as followers of Jesus, and it's really the hand-in-the-glove kind of deal here. You either really have both of them or you don't have either one of them. And, uh, and so that's our mission statement to kind of keep our vision on why we're here. Now, we've broken this down into four different marks of what a developing follower of Jesus looks like, four areas, if you will, four areas of our mind and our heart that need to continue to develop, all oriented around the work of Christ that we've symbolized here with the cross and the resurrection. Now that would include His life, that would include His ascension, that re- includes His return But just for simplicity purposes, that is the uh, symbol that we're using. So, one of the marks of a uh, developing follower of Jesus who's developing others is that they're knowing God and living lives according to the Bible. The direction of the arrow here is critical. Because the thing that sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems, well, one of the things that sets it apart, is that we do not work hard to measure up to God. We don't do things so that we can have peace with Him. Uh, He does all of that. And uh, boy, we sung some very powerful songs about that this morning. It's illogical in one sense. I mean, how can it be? But it is. It is. And so the downward arrow symbolizes that as we know God and live our lives according to the Bible, we're constantly in this state of understanding more and more of who God is and His goodness and His mercy and His grace and all of that that is towards us so that we live more in His love. We live more in the realities of who He is. We'll never do anything that would cause us to measure up better And we can't do anything that would bring us under condemnation if we really are reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's one constant area of growing. The second one, these aren't in order really, but the next one is that God has put us together as a family, people that have been equally reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to engage as family in God's church because it's, one of the primary ways, if not the primary way, to become more like Jesus. The next one is, or another one is, is that we organize our lives to tell others about Jesus. Two weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 4. And one of the, one of the realities that, man, just has to keep sinking into us is that we know things about God and His salvation that people don't know. Um, you walk into a Home Depot and there's all kinds of people in there and you walk in to get something like I do, whatever I get is not going to last. All the people in there, they're eternal. And I know things that some of them don't know because they don't know about God. They don't know about Christ. They don't know about their lostness and this overwhelming sense that we need to organize our lives to tell others because there's no other way they'll know. And it does no good to walk out of Home Depot having something that is not going to last very long and to miss the opportunities that may be there to help someone eternally, right? Right? So there's this organizing of our lives and setting a priority there to help people know what we now know. And then the the next one is, in all things, praising God and depending upon Him in prayer. Just God weaving into the warp and woof of our life this response of praising God. The more we know about Him, the more we know about His love, the more our heart responds in praise, and the more we say, God, help me. I don't want to live a life in my own resources. I don't want to live a life in my own wisdom. And so prayer becomes just a regular part of life in all things, not just in the hard times and not just in the good times. It just gets woven into all of our lives. So those are four marks of a follower of Jesus in which we're growing in. This morning we're... We're focusing upon engaging his family in God's church to become more like Jesus. And I've kept in there knowing God and living our lives according to the scriptures because these two absolutely intermingle with each other. Now, when we think about the church and God's family, if we look at the New Testament, Uh, you know that the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which describes the good news of who Jesus is and what He came to do and how He enters people's lives. And those who know that they're lost and they need a Savior, uh, they experience His salvation. Those who say there's another way, you're not really God… They experience the severest condemnation and are told that they are of their father, the devil. And so we have those four Gospels. Now, in one of those Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks the question one day of his 12 disciples. He says, so who, who are the people saying that I am? And they, they give them some responses. Some say Elijah, some say this, some say that. And then Jesus, never afraid to put anybody on the spot, said, but whom do you say I am? And Peter, as we would expect, has an answer. <laughs> he says, thou art the Christ. You are the one anointed and sent by God to reconcile and restore things into a right relationship with God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, uh, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own. It was the Spirit of God who revealed that to you. And based upon the truth that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so, do you want to know what Jesus is up to? He says he's going to build his church. That's what he declared to those disciples. In the midst of everything else, he's not just about individual salvations, he's about building the church. And so he ascends back into heaven 40 days later, The church is born. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts continues on and shows how Jesus is building his church. It begins all Jewish. Then he grabs the apostle Paul. Well, he grabs Saul, turns him into the apostle Paul, and the gospel begins to go out to non-Jewish people, and he's building his church there. The next nine letters in the New Testament are written to local churches, to the church, The church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia, in the region of Galatia, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and Philippians, and Thessalonians. And then there's 1 Timothy, and there's Titus, where he writes to two of his disciples and says, you set things in order in the church. Timothy, you do that in Ephesus. Titus, you do that in Crete. And there's other letters that go on, and all of them have some tie into him building his church. So, even the Hebrews, it's written to a particular group of people that are wandering away from the truth of salvation in Christ alone. He says to them, do not forsake the assembling together, as is the manner of some of you. And so, it is all in there. Then we get to the last book in the New Testament, the last book in the Bible, Revelation, Revelation, And in chapters 2 and 3, he addresses seven different churches. What they're doing right, what they're doing wrong. If they don't fix what's wrong, he's coming. And it's not going to be pretty. If they follow him and they fix it, whoop, off the charts. Blessing to them. And then we get to Revelation chapter 19, and we see... His church, the bride, presented to Him in all of its glory. And we have this amazing wedding supper. The wedding supper of the Lamb and the bride. Jesus is building His church, amen? I mean, it's all through there. I want us to look at Ephesians this morning, and we'll see how this is just warp and woof in there. And so, we just have to keep adjusting our eyesight here. Now, here's, here's the point. Here's the overarching point for this morning. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, they have a new personal identity, and they have a new family identity. That, that, that is so clear, and it's going to be especially clear in the book of Ephesians here. So, you give me some uh, ways our new personal identity is described. For example, we're Children of God. What, else, what would be some other descriptions of our new personal identity? A new creation. New creation. New Saints. You? Priesthood. priesthood. Heirs. Sponsored. Okay? Wait, there's a lot of different descriptions of our new personal identity. What's our new family identity? The body of Christ, the, of Christ. the household of God. The household of God. Okay, adopted, the church, brothers and sisters, sisters, even calling God Father is a recognition that we're part of a family that is together. So, it's so easy for us to miss this and to emphasize our personal new identity in Christ and miss our family identity Or to emphasize our family identity and miss our personal identity, and they are, it's a both and. It's so much a both and. So, Ephesians chapter 1. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 here. And what I want to do is I'm going to begin reading through this, and I want you just to see how these two things are so commingled uh, together here. And don't panic, I'm not going to read the whole book of Ephesians, although it probably would be one of the most beneficial things I could do this morning. Um, I am going to read quite a bit of the first part here. Um, and, and I want you to, well, my encouragement would be that you sit down sometime this read and, and read the whole book. It'll take you 15 minutes. It's not long. And, and just read the whole book. Uh, So, a little bit of background before we uh, start reading here. Uh, The Apostle Paul came to the city of Ephesus, a major city in uh, Asia, what we know of Asia as uh, what we know of as Turkey today, a major port city. I mean, this was a place the Greeks fought over, the Romans fought over. It was a place of rampant idolatry to a pagan goddess as well as there is a, a group of Jews there that met in the synagogue there. The Apostle Paul comes into the city of Ephesus because he knows things about God that the people did not know. And he's joined by some others, and he begins preaching and telling them about who Jesus is, first of all to the Jews. When, when uh, a lot of them would not listen, they kicked him out. Then he started to take the good news to non-Jewish people. And as people responded to the gospel of Christ, and as they believed, he, they began to form the family of God in the city of Ephesus. They began to form that aspect and that part of the body of Christ. Some years later, Paul is in prison, and he writes this letter back to them. Because maybe their vision had gone to 2,200 about what the church is, maybe 2,400 based upon who they were in Christ. Uh, Their vision had somewhat been lost. I personally wonder if Paul now in prison has a whole new appreciation for the church and being able to gather together because he can't do it. He's in jail. But he writes this letter back under the power of the Spirit, and it just helps correct our vision about our personal new identity and our identity as the family of God. So beginning... Well, before I read, let me pray. Uh, Lord, I uh, just want to thank You for Your Word. Uh, man, You didn't have to give it to us, and You have. You've even given us to us in English. So we're so grateful for those who have uh, put it in a language that we can understand. But Lord, it's going to talk about things that are beyond what language can even fully communicate so we look to use spirit of god and uh, we confess to you we all have cataracts we don't see as clearly as we should we want to ask you to use your word as the laser that would sharpen our eyesight so we would see you more clearly we would see ourselves more clearly we would see your church more clearly we would see people that don't know you yet more clearly all for your name's sake and it is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Now, who's a saint? Yeah, you can say, if you're a follower of Christ, just say me. That's not arrogant. That's humility. You're just agreeing with God. Right? If you say, I'm not a saint, well, you've got an issue with God because that's the kind of cleanup job he does. Now, it may not all be worked out yet, but to the saints, to those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, right there we have the outline for the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters are gonna describe what it means to be a saint, who we are in our identity. The last three chapters, which are filled with commands, tells us how to be faithful, how it is to work out in Christ. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Who's the Beloved? Christ. The Beloved there is Christ. We know that because look at verse 7. In Him... In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, let me just pause there. So how does a person step in to this great redemption? How do they step in to all of the riches and blessings of heaven? How do they know that? They listen to the message of truth and they believe. Verse 13, right? And when that happens, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What do you say to that? I mean, let me just pause for a minute. I don't know how we could possibly read this and not have a response back to God. I mean, he loves you. Why? Because he wants to. According to the counsel of his own will. You know what that means? He himself just decided to love me. Is that crazy? Is that good? And, and in his love, I mean, he chose us, he predestined us, He redeemed us through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of our trespasses. And and even though all that was there, verse 9, he opened our eyes to the mystery of his will. I was bumbling along, thinking I was okay with God, living my life on my own, and he made sure that he opened my eyes to this reality of his will for my life. He totally interrupted my life. How about yours? Amazing, huh? Just amazing. So let me just pause for a minute. Let me give you a chance just to declare your thanksgiving or your praise or whatever back to God based upon any of this stuff, any of these truths that has just been said. So let me just pause. You can do it out loud. You can do it silently. But man, if it's to the praise of his glory, let's praise him. Amen? Go ahead. And you spend a few moments just praising him and thanking him for these truths, amen, amen, amen. So if you're ever feeling down, just read those verses. Verse 15, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now, let me just stop and say, if you want to know what the priorities of your heart are, listen to what you pray for. Prayers are a window into each of our hearts about what is important to us and what our priorities are. And for a follower of Jesus Christ, more and more, we need to cultivate reading the truth of God and responding to it in prayer. And that's what we see going on here. The Apostle Paul has just reminded the believers at Ephesus, and the Spirit of God has used this for us today, about this amazing truth of who God is and what he has given to those who are his followers. And what he now prays for is that people would get it. He prays for the Ephesians that God would keep turning the light bulb on more and more and more concerning God's great love for them. And so he says, verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. In other words, the light would turn on and would turn on and would turn on and turn on so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. I mean, this is the very power, the very strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ooh, that's a prayer. That's a prayer. Man, that we would know God's calling upon our lives to follow Jesus and grow in our devotion to him and that we would go and develop others and that we would know that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is towards us. (laughs) And in fact, even as Christ is seated in the heavenly places, you and I are seated in the heavenly places today. I'm not telling you I understand that. I'm just telling you that's good. That is overwhelmingly good. And here we see this family identity that he gave him as Christ his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's an ongoing sense in which there's a fullness of Christ manifested in his church that is not available individually. It's just an ongoing emphasis. Now, you might say, so, okay, that's really cool. Well, he says, no, you need to understand what you used to be and what you are now. So let me just just show you the miracle that's taken place in your life to put you in this place. Because you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, in divulging, in indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Don't ever forget who you were before God opened your eyes to Christ. Don't ever forget. That's the description of us. Now, it may vary in degrees, but we are all equally dead. We were all equally children of wrath, deserving the wrath of God. Now, you may have done things worse than I did, or I may have done it worse than you did, but degrees don't really make a hell of beans difference. If you're dead, you're dead. If you're going to get the wrath of God, that is not good. That's eternal damnation. And so don't ever forget that. And yet, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And what do we say to that? Amen, hallelujah, dead to alive, and really alive when we get to Eddie Blair's stage. I mean, that's why Till says, man, I've been waiting for it all morning, enough of this. And then this great summary statement, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created, literally the word is created out of nothing, created out of deadness in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, we use this verse to talk about a lot of different things. Most of those are secondary applications. What's the primary good work that God made us new creations that he made us saints for. What's the primary good work here in the context that we would walk in them? He goes on and tells us that we would function within the body of Christ in unity. That's the main good work. Therefore, remember that you were formerly Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision. I won't read through all of this, but what he's saying is whether you were Jewish or whether you were non-Jewish a separation that was very common to them based upon the Old Testament he says it doesn't make any difference what your ethnicity is you are to be one in the body of Christ That's the main work you have is to live in unity within the body of Christ within the church of God Now, when he writes to the Galatian churches, he says it's not just unity no matter what your ethnicity is. He would say unity no matter whether you're a male or female. Because whether you're a man or a woman, there's an equal redemptive work of God. There's an equal lavishness of all of the blessings of heavens towards you. And we are not To create distinctions where God says, You are equal and one in Christ. In fact, Galatians, he goes on and says, There's neither slave nor free. In other words, there's no differences in vocation. There's no blue collar, white collar. There's no this side of the tracks, the other side of the tracks. There's no how much is in your bank account. There's no how many degrees do you have and letters behind your name. None of that. Because it was an equal redemptive work of Christ. It was an equal work of the Father opening our eyes to this mystery that He would love us that much and that He would provide a way for us to live in His lavish love and blessings. That is the main work that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in it. Now, I'm not saying the other applications are wrong. I'm just saying... That's the clear point of the passage. And so he goes on in chapter 3. And most people feel like he begins to pray that we would get this. Well, maybe I should read the last few verses of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So there's that whole corporate identity. And the way he sums it up. In chapter 3, most people feel like he began to pray in the first part there for this reason, and then he picks it up in verse 14 which says for this reason that he's going to pray that we would get this, but before he does that, he says, you know, God just called me to this blessed ministry of revealing this mystery to you, that there's no distinctions of his love and his mercy and his grace based upon ethnicities, based upon male or female, based upon socioeconomic backgrounds. That is a fresh and new work of God that the body of Christ would be made up of all this diversity having an equal value and worth because of the equal redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gets back to the prayer in verse 14 and he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom, and depending on what translation you have here, It will say every family, or it will say whole family. So, some of the translations have one, some have the other. And it could be that he's talking about from whom every family, talking about different local congregations. Probably most people feel like it's best translated the whole family, the whole church, through time. The church, as he's going to add in, the church in heaven in just a minute, Um, because the whole emphasis of this passage is how we're one, how we're unified. It's not emphasizing our particular nature. It's emphasizing our common nature. From whom the whole family in heaven and on earth, what's that mean? It means... Those saints who have died and are part of his church are forever a part of his church in heaven. And we are part of his church on earth, and there's people that don't even know it yet who are going to become a part of his church. And the family derives its name from who? From the father. Who named your child? The ones who brought you into this world, right? Your mom and dad. The naming privilege is left to the one who creates you. And that's what we see here. The Father has given this name because it is his creation from the, before the foundation of the world that now is being played out. And here's the prayer. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Mm, that's a lot of riches, don't you think? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So what's Paul praying? He's praying, God, help them, help us to understand what is infinite. That's what he's praying. Help them to understand the infinite love you have for them. Because to the extent that they know the love of Christ, they will be filled up with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, that's the person of the Spirit, to him be glory in what? my life, in my Catrell family, well, there's nothing wrong with praying that, but what's it say? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, and to that we say, amen. 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 And so, chapters 1 through 3, here's, here's our identity as saints And as members of the body of Christ, the household of God, um, and the different descriptions that are used there. That's our identity. Now, what does it mean to live faithfully out that identity? Chapter 4, verse 1 begins, and it goes through chapter 6. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so, how do you live in this unity In the equal blessings of God, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were all called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Get the impression God's everywhere? Why? Why? To bless, to love. Now he switches gears a little bit in verse 7, and he says, the body is one body based upon an equal redemptive work of Christ, based upon equal blessings towards every single believer that are experienced within the family of God. But I want you to know there's some differences between the grace that is given in the sense of gifts and abilities and ways in which you should serve in the body. Now that doesn't have anything to do with your value and worth, it doesn't have anything of the lavish love of God, it has to do with some distinctions on how you will serve within the body of Christ. And so he goes on, he says, describes that, gives one of the most magnificent descriptions of the body of Christ working together with all of its diversity in unity, beginning of verse 12, These leaders are given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to a mature woman, to a mature Christ follower, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now, that is called job security right there because we keep at this till we're all just like Jesus. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, here's the point, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself." in love now beginning of verse 17 really through the rest of the book he gets into specifics what does it mean to not be tossed about anymore but to grow up to be like christ what does it mean to function and be a part of a family where other people help you grow up so you're not tossed around and how do you help other people grow up into the stature of christ and not be tasked around uh, thrown around, how does that happen? And he just begins to give a whole bunch, a list of of, of some of these changes of, of growing up and maturing in Christ. Uh, you stop, you lay aside falsehood and you speak truth. Verse twenty five. You quit being angry and you be angry, but you don't sin. You stop stealing and you start working so that you'll have something to give. And on and on the list goes. And then it gets into, oh, if you're a wife, this is what it looks like. If you're a husband, this is what it looks like. If you're a child, this is what it looks like. If you're a parent, this is what it looks like. If you're a slave or you're working for someone else, this is what it looks like. If you're an owner, this is what it looks like. And don't ever lose perspective, finally, at the very end of the book, that ultimately a wrestling match is not against other people, this is a spiritual battle, and our wrestling is against Satan, so make sure that you stay fully prepared to live out in battle against him. And so it just, it just lists the specifics of how that is going to happen. Now, this was given to the church at Ephesus so that they would engage his family in God's church, right? Right? to become more like Jesus, no longer tossed about, but maturing and growing up. Now we don't exactly know how the church at Ephesus was organized. We don't know. Well, they probably didn't have a sanctuary. Uh, They had one group of elders based upon 1 Timothy for the whole city, uh, about 250,000 people as best we can tell during those days. Doesn't seem like they had a building. They probably met in small groups, but they were all under the authority of the elders. Maybe they had some large group gatherings in the Colosseum. Uh, We don't know a lot about how that met. But over the years, as the church continued to go on... Then they got buildings pretty quickly on, and they started meeting except where persecution happens. And then there's no large group gatherings. Then they go back to small group gatherings. And so there's all these dynamics and changes to bring us down to where we are today. But here's the constant. There's always a giving and receiving as a part of the family of God on the part of all those who are a part of it. So when we say engaging is family in God's church, engaging means there's giving and there's receiving. There's giving and receiving. That both of those always go together. Now here at Calvary, let me just tell you that we encourage and emphasize four aspects of engaging. Five aspects. Can't count very good, can I? Um, One is a participation in engaging in large group worship. In other words... Uh, what we're doing right now. And there's a giving and receiving that comes on. There's a giving of saying good morning to someone. There's the receiving of having somebody say good morning to you. There's the giving and receiving of singing. You sing, you listen to other people sing. You pray, other people pray. Uh, There's all this giving and receiving that goes on. And, uh, and, And that's the way it should be. But we also need smaller groups in which we can do more life on life, because you can come in here and hide out and be anonymous and and not even grow up and reveal some of the areas that you need to grow up in and to become like Christ, or you don't have the same opportunity to help other people grow up. And so that's the place of our life groups or our small groups. Next week, we'll give you a chance to sign up for those. And we're going to have two different kinds, I'll explain this next week, Uh, our our regular life groups that we have now, and ones particularly organized to help us grow in reaching and discipling lost people. So, more about that next week. There's a whole serving, all kinds of serving in women's ministry, in men's ministry, in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, in our greeters. And, And there again, there's the giving, and I received, I walked in, and I got greeted by a greeter. I received." So there's this constant giving and receiving. There's the giving financially, and there's receiving financial benefits. I don't know of any one of us here, and if you're here, I'd love to talk to you, who paid for and financed this whole campus today. (laughs) We're all receiving from other people's giving by even sitting in this building and parking on a paved parking lot, right? We're receiving what other people gave, and hopefully we're giving as well. Most of us couldn't even afford the utility bill here. And so there's a constant giving and receiving, because that's the way the body of Christ works, even financially. And then there's the giving and receiving of people who we've sent out. I mean, there's this whole thing going on there. And then there's just the equipping. Uh, that's what happens from 9 to 10. That's what happens with financial peace on Wednesday night. That's what happens in a lot of different formats. So, there are the different ways to be involved and to engage here at Calvary. And uh, if we're going through this and the, and the Spirit's just putting a gentle finger, well, He's not always gentle, He's putting a finger on you that you need to engage more fully in one of these You know it, and the Lord knows it, and just be obedient to Him. Now, it may mean that you have to come and say this or that. I don't know. But we would love to help you engage for your good and for the good of others as well. Last Monday night at our elder meeting, we we switch around who does devotions. And uh, Eric Eisman led the devotion um, last Monday night when we met together. And after he read a passage of Scripture and and, uh, shared some things about that, he said, let's just go around the table and let us every one of us share an experience that we had with a local church that helped us, something along those lines. And he began by sharing how a church in Florida uh, brought him the gospel and helped him understand who he was and who God was and how much he needed Christ. And that's where he became a follower of the Lord Jesus. I've got a lot of these, but uh, the thing that came to mind was uh, Camilla and I got married uh, during college, and, uh, and so we got to graduation, we'd been married two years, I'd been a follower of Jesus for three years, and so we graduated, I got commissioned. And during those three years of being a follower of Christ, I never really engaged in a local church. There was one closer than from here to the end of the parking lot. A good one. I mean, things were happening there. And I may have gone a half dozen times in three years. I also had some issues with alcohol in those days, that even becoming a follower of Christ. There were a lot of other issues that I was totally oblivious to. So we drove cross country to Fort Benning, Georgia for me to do my first training. And you know, it's just one of those grace moments where God helps you know that you need help and you need to make some changes to your life. And kind of like Randy, I knew I couldn't turn this corner on alcohol. Uh, I mean, it wasn't as bad as it was, but it's still bad. And, uh, and so we made a commitment that we would jump into a local church, and we would be faithful to that church consistently. And so we got into Columbus, Georgia. It was late on a Saturday night, and we opened up the yellow pages. Any of you remember what yellow pages are? <laughs> and I mean, we know nothing, but God's so kind to us. And we opened it up, and we picked a church, and then we had to pull out a Thomas guide and try to figure out how to get there. And, uh, and we showed up at that church, and we just knew we had to jump in. So we jumped into Sunday school, we jumped into worship. About a month later, we had our entire Sunday school class over. We just knew we had to jump in with both feet and not wait for anything, that this, this was on us. And uh, we were only there six months, but I went from preschool to about second grade. Alcohol has never been an issue for me again. Now, over the years, he keeps revealing other things that are. (laughs) (laughs) But it's revealed in the midst of the church and the help has come through the church. I so regret those three years that I wasted. I can't go back and get those three years back. But if I'd gotten my sorry tail out of bed and jumped into that local church down there, how much better off I would have been, how much better off Camilla would have been. But thanks be to God, he's the God of the second chance, isn't he? God designed the local church. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of the family of God. Make sure you're engaging in a local church. If you're visiting here from out of town, make sure you're engaging in a church in your hometown. But we need this. Amen? Let me give you a chance just to respond to the Lord as Stephen comes up to lead us. Lord, even in reading through Ephesians several times this week, I'm just reminded again of my natural tendency to diminish who you are and your love for me as a saint, and who you are and your love to me through the local church. And so I thank you for this reminder. Thanks be to you for your revelation and for your help. May our eyesight be closer to 2020 towards ourselves and towards your body as we walk out the rest of this week. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.